Welcome to Consumed, the podcast about people who eat things, drink things, think things, and make things. So, you know, everybody. I'm Jamie Lewis, and this seventh season, I speak with folks across California, from Chico to Santa Barbara, Humboldt and Grass Valley to Los Angeles. But always at the heart of it is the Central Coast. I hope you get to hear them all. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to my friend, James Onaveros for supporting the work of this podcast. James is the force behind the family of wines known as Ranchos de Anaveros in the Santa Maria Valley. And because all of our friends in the food and drink industry need a boost right now, I'm going to talk about how you can get your hands on some of his wine this winter. For the holidays, wine is the perfect locally made, handmade gift that directly supports those who work to produce it. And for January 1st and beyond, Drinking beautiful Burgundy-inspired Chardonnay and Pinot Noir is the perfect way to celebrate what we're all hoping is a kinder and gentler year. Visit the website for information on how to order Rancho Steanaveros wines, which can be shipped or delivered to your porch for free if you live around Santa Barbara County. To see what's available and to make your order, visit ranchosteanaveros.com. Cheers! Consumed is also sponsored in part by Slow Life Magazine, which has been sharing the stories of the San Luis Obispo community for over a decade. I write the food column for Slow Life, and most recently I covered dishes made from ingredients that aren't always common here on the Central Coast. I'm considering writing about Bao's steamed buns for the next column, but what do you think? Hit me up on the contact page at letsgetconsumed.com with your ideas for what to cover next. And if you want Slow Life Magazine delivered to your door every other month, visit slowlifemagazine.com. If you've ever been to Santa Barbara, you know exactly how dreamy the central coast of California is. Sun and surf and sand and temperate weather and knockout wines and fresh farm-to-table fare. I mean, it's already over the top. But if you add in a stay or dinner at the Hotel Californian in the Funk Zone you'll never be able to recover. The property was originally built in the 1920s and was renovated to its new glory in 2018. And Travis Watson is its executive chef. His style is artful and fresh with an emphasis on sustainability and bringing joy. Chef Travis has cooked all over the globe, but it started with washing dishes at 14 years old in Los Angeles. Here he talks to me about maintaining energy in a relentless job, his savory marshmallow dish that nobody ordered, and we get a little creepy discussing one of his previous gigs working for the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, which is the inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining, and which Chef Travis says is totally, completely haunted. Here's my conversation with Hotel Californian's executive chef, Travis Watson. Chef Travis Watson, thank you for letting me talk to you. Of course, thank you. We just, in full disclosure, we just moved from the... Um, Serena Deck. The Serena Deck, which is really, really beautiful, but kind of windy today. A little breezy today. Yeah. So you, if you have been, um, I see that you've done a lot of hotel I have. work. So have you always been a hospitable person? <laughs> um <laughs> I've always been in hospitality. I've never had a job that wasn't in hospitality. I started cooking. I started, well, I started in professional kitchens when I was 14. Mm. So it's been 34 years of being in professional kitchens. Um, started by washing dishes at a restaurant in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, 
and about three or four days into it, I told my mom that I'm either going to be a professional chef or I'm going to be a professional football player mm. um, because it was that fun a place. It was that exciting. It was that, that energy, that vibe. So I knew pretty early on that that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. So, Did football ever come into it? Yeah, I played college football. Played throughout really? high school, played in college, University of Arizona, Bear Down. Nice. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. So football paid for my education. Wow. <laughs> wow. My uh, non-culinary education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I saw on your, um, the way that you did things, you went to culinary school first, right? Well, technically I went to Arizona Western and Yuma first. Okay. And I tore some tendons in my left ankle. Mm-hmm. So then I came back. I was only there for probably six weeks uh, out of high school. I came back and the place that I was working at before said, we'll pay for you to go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. They used to get, back in the day, they used to get stipends. The government would pay them if they sponsored a kid. Mm-hmm. So I was coming back. I was all hobbled. I figured, you know, I couldn't play football. I was, I figured why not? So I went to Scottsdale Culinary Institute. Um, so I did that and then I got out of that and then I went to the University of Arizona. That's so interesting. I know so many people. Well, I shouldn't say so many, but I know I know a handful of people who have gotten into wine, food, beer, whatever, because they hurt themselves, they injured themselves playing sports. Mm. And a coach or someone said, you know, you should really check out this if you can't sure. do that. Sure. Yeah. But you're saying that it has mm. the same energy. It really does. A, a professional kitchen, the, the energy and the vibe and the, and the pace um, and the intensity. Um, it's as close as you're going to get to to playing a sport, I would say. So, and I love that. I love that. I love that energy. I love that that pressure. Um, I've always loved it. Hmm. Uh, where did you grow up? Were you in LA? I was. Okay. I was. I was born in LA. I was raised in Arizona. I'm kind. I call myself kind of an Arizona boy. So, hmm. um, a lot of my formative years were in Arizona. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And did you did you have a family member who got you into cooking or got you interested in food? Um, my football coach when I was a freshman in high school my football coach was an executive chef of a place and he asked me if I wanted a summer job if I wanted to wash dishes and I said absolutely I thought at 14 it'd be really cool to make your own money and uh so really I was I started by washing dishes I started you know and like the like a lot of people kind of my demographic my age group we started by washing dishes then you moved to prep and then you moved to pantry um and I just fell in love with it really really early on mm. so yeah and what was your first hotel job Wow, good question. That's or did you work in years. restaurants before that? I worked I mean, in a lot of freestanding restaurants before. Yeah. Um, my first hotel job was probably, don't hold me to this, but probably mm-hmm. Four Seasons Seattle. Really? Um, yeah. I know somebody else who worked at Four Seasons mm-hmm. Seattle. A hundred years ago, so, yeah. But a beautiful property, beautiful I Beautiful property. You know, I've been really lucky. My whole, you know, my my career I've spent at really really nice property so my hotel career has been spent in some really really nice places so mm. I've been knock on wood I've been really fortunate how does Santa Barbara compare to all of those uh, Santa Barbara is breathtaking mm-hmm. um, and even the location so Santa Barbara is a beautiful place in general yeah. our location especially yeah. right we're 60 yards away from the from the beach um, you know I can my drive up I live in Ventura and I drive up to Santa Barbara my drive is literally along the beach every morning um, it gives us access to great, great seafood and local produce. Santa Barbara is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as a beautiful place to work, it, this is as comparable to any place I've ever worked in my, in my career. Mm. So uh, I don't have a single bad thing to say. 
And that's saying something um, because I, I told you I wanted to talk about the Stanley Hotel sure. in Estes Park. Is that what you say, Estes Park or Denver? Estes, Estes okay. Uh-huh. Which I've been to Estes before, but we didn't go to the Stanley. And I'm a big, um, I, I'm a Stephen King fan, but I'm definitely a Sh- The Shining fan. For sure. So the Stanley Hotel mm-hmm. is where uh, Stephen King stayed. Yes. And it inspired The Shining. Yes, He'd, he went there like on a little mini vacation. He didn't go there to plan to write anything. Right. Um, and his experience there, he left there and wrote The Shining based on his experience there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and go ahead. Please. I, what, I know, what I was saying, I said earlier, is that, so generally speaking, if people say something is haunted, generally speaking, I kind of don't believe in that. Um, I think anytime something happens that we can't explain readily, we say, you know, we give it the excuse that it's been haunted. Um, I will tell you, Estes Park, the Stanley Hotel is haunted. <laughs> um, and I, stay, I can say that because when I first took that job, I lived on that property. No. Normally when chefs when when chefs move around like I wasn't from the area. So they give you a little time on the hotel. A they have access to you and that's a benefit of yes. theirs, but B um it gives you time to kind of move your family up to find a place to live, so on and so forth. So I lived on that property. Um which is like a dream and a nightmare. It's it's a good thing and a, and a bad thing, no question. But in fairness, my last 5 or 6 or 7 or so I've lived on the property for a while. Yeah. So um, it really does give you, as a chef, it gives you a great understanding of the intricacies of this hotel, of this property. Yeah. Um, it, lets, it gives you access to the operation literally 24 hours a day because you're just feet away. Mm. Um, it, there are some huge benefits to it. And I so much so that it would be weird for me to take a job at a place and not be there that yeah. much. Yeah. Um, chefs, we work a lot anyway, but having access to being able to see how your overnight cook does things and how like I, I wanted to, to do all of that. It's it's it really does help you have a complete understanding of of the totality of the operation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I mean, though, by a nightmare is you stayed on the property mm-hmm. overnight for a while. So you said you don't believe in haunted things but you do about that place. that place is haunted i i could tell you story after story yeah, there so start <laughs> <laughs> well i'll tell you so i'll tell you and you can you can actually google this there's a flag in um the music room they have a room there that's a it's a small um banquet space but it's called the music room there's this huge piano so on and so forth and there's this beautiful massive mantle and there was a gentleman who there's a whiskey bar right at, on the Stanley, and there's a gentleman who was a uh, veteran who came, used to go there every day. Um, and I want to say his name was Michael or Bill, or maybe it was, Mi- it was Michael or Bill. And he donated this flag, this massive American flag, because um, he was actually uh, disabled from, he got hit by an IUD, his, his hum, Humvee got hit by an IUD, and it tore a piece of his leg off. Mm-hmm. So he, that's mm-hmm. the reason he wasn't currently in the military. And he donated the flag that was in that Humvee to the Stanley, mm-hmm. and they hung it over the mantle. This all happened whilst I was there, so let me just say that part. I saw this entire process. So the music room isn't a room that we used all the time, but when I was living on property, I used to cut through it because it was kind of my thoroughway that I could get to other places on the property. Mm. Um, so fast forward a couple of weeks after they mounted it, I'm walking through with my, my director of food and beverage. And I say, his name was Dan. I say, Dan, do you see a face in that flag? And he looks up and goes, where? And I go, you can't see it. It's right there. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, I don't see it. What kind of face did you see? It just literally looked like somebody was pressing their face into the flag. Like you could see the outline of their features wow. and it was super, super faint. So okay. whatever, yeah. um, you know. So this goes on, but I think every time I walk through the room, it's more pronounced. 
And I'm like, I'm positive you can see a face. So fast forward another two weeks. To me, now it's more pronounced. Yeah. Okay. And we walk through there, and I'm walking through with my general manager at the time. And I'm like, are you telling me you don't see a face in that? He looks up and goes, you're, you're crazy. There's no face in that. I'm like, all right, whatever. I know I'm not crazy, but okay. <laughs> so this goes on for probably two months, let's say. Two months into this, I walk by, now I'm positive. The face is getting more and more pronounced every time you look at it. I'm positive there's a face in this. Um, so I say to Dan, me and my director of food and beverage are going to walk into that room. And I say, you don't see it? He goes, I can see the face now. He goes, that's, that's crazy. I didn't see it before. And I said, it wasn't that pronounced before. So this goes on for another it's month or changing. so. It's changing. It's getting more and more pronounced. Okay. Okay. Um, and now when you walk through it, everybody can see it. Oh Three months boy. into it, right? Everybody can tell what it is, blah, blah, blah. And so Bill, I believe the gentleman who donated it, I said, you got to see this. Like, I just want to show you something. So we walk over from, from where he was at, and he comes and goes, oh, yeah, that's our com- that was my commanding officer. He died in the Humvee. What? And I go, stop it, stop it. He goes, no, that's literally his face. And he showed me a picture that he carried in his wallet. And it's literally his face. Oh, my gosh. And it got per- more pronounced, more pronounced now, so much so that, like, it's like a thing. now. People, people can, come yeah. to see it now. It's, and when I first stayed there, I stayed in, in room 1408. Okay. okay. Oh, I'm getting so willied out by this. <laughs> Pretty, pretty famous room, and, and I'll go into why that, that mm-hmm. is in a second. So uh, staying there on my very first night. So I get there, let's say, 10 in the morning, right? And I'm doing my little tours, and I'm meeting people. Um, and then I actually go change, and I want to spend some time in the kitchen. So I'm in the kitchen until probably, let's say, 1 o'clock in the morning. I watch the, uh, the overnight food go out. I watch the whole thing. Finally, it's it for the first day. I go back to my room, uh, take a shower, lay down, and I'm pretty tired right you travel all morning then you you do the little tour and then you work at night pretty beat up just lay my head down and there's kids in the hallway mm. and I'm like please dear god like <laughs> we've all been there like <laughs> I, I I'm I'm a guest but I'm like I'm an employee but I'm also a guest like right yeah. now I just want to be a guest and go to sleep mm-hmm. so I figured they're just kids they'll do this for a little bit. Some parent is going to stop them from doing this, right? You're not going to let these kids do this all night. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wait. Now it's 2 in the morning. Mm. Still playing. Now it's 2.45, and I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I played the game long enough. Listen. Um, I would say so, yeah. I, I've, I've been as tolerant as I can be. i got to say something to these kids. So I walk out in the hallway, and the, the whole hallway's kind of built like an L. Uh-huh. And I walk out, and I peek my head out, and I don't see the kids. So then I turn the corner and I walk down the hall. I still don't see the kids. And I'm like, cool, perfect. Yeah. They went in their little rooms. They're going to be asleep. No big thing. So I go to my room. I fall asleep. At about 3 in the morning, I kind of hear them jostling, but not a big deal. So in the morning, I get ready, and I have to walk by the concierge to get back to the main, the main restaurant. Yeah. And I said, hey, listen, I'm, you know, I'm Travis. I'm in, tell them the room I'm in. And I said, listen, is there any way you can either move me, because I don't want to disturb this family, but I, I just don't want to be next to, I just want to be able to sleep when I go to my room. Yeah. And there's, is there any way you could move my room? And she asked what room I was in. I said I was in 1408. Hmm. And she goes, oh, so, so tell me about the kids you heard. And I said, they were just kids. And they sounded like they were playing with the ball. I just heard the bouncing and I heard them laughing. She goes, oh, yeah, there's no kids on your floor. Oh, my God. And I said, well, where are the kids at? Because they're coming to my floor. She goes, no, you heard the little girls, didn't you? 
And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, the, those little girls died in 1908, and they're, they're twin girls. No. And it's she goes, the girls. It's the girls from the movie. And she goes, they really died here in 1908, and they stayed in the room. She goes, you'll always hear it if you're in 1408. <gasps> oh, my God. And it literally, telling the story gives me goosebumps. But I I'm have not, them. Yeah. I'm not saying that like I could kind of hear them. It was faint. It was literally like they were right outside my door. Wow. Um, it, <sighs> wow. And I was like, what? And I probably stayed in that room because they moved your, they moved you around based on their occupancy. Like you can't stay in whatever. Right. Because um, they know they can move you. Yes. One hundred percent. You know, you don't need any notice. They, you know, you're pretty captive. So. Yeah. Um, and they, I, I was probably there for five or six days, and all five or six days you. My husband and I went as those twins for Halloween mm. one year, which is pretty funny. My husband in a dress with the wig and everything. But I mean, when I tell you, we love that story. We love it. But it's a little too close when you talk about it it's, like this. It, it's um, again, I didn't know the totality of the story. I'd watched The Shining years before I'd yeah. ever taken this position. Um, but I'm telling you, that place is that. So there's something going on there. There is. Um, there are spirits that live inside that hotel. Oh, I love I it. Will, now I have yeah. to reread it. Yes, oh, it my is. Gosh. It's incredible. Well, so let's talk a little bit about um, the food here and how you've crafted the menu. So okay. what was your inspiration for what you set up? Well, one of the things, again, being in Santa Barbara and being so close to the ocean and being so close to some great farming areas, and uh, I wanted to make sure that, A, everything that we use was sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really, really, really big on sustainability. Um, and so how we harvest what we harvest is really important, um, especially when we're talking about our proteins, how we, how we pull what we pull from the oceans um, and how we harvest our, all of the, um, the proteins we use is really important to me. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted everything to be organic. So everything, I just told our purveyors, generally speaking, if it's not organic, don't bring it here. Hmm. Um, and so I'm going to make a menu based around seasonality. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of being where we're at seasonality means something different than if you in Colorado, for instance, right? right yes. uh, Colorado has truly four seasons. We really have a really extended summer. Um, yeah. So we have things that are in season for us that you can't get a lot of places right now. Mm -hmm. um, heirloom tomatoes are still perfect right now. Yeah. Right. Um, in November. In November. Right. Yeah. So th the truth is our, you know, being seasonal is really easy when your seasons are stretched out as our seasons are. Yeah. Um, but sustainability, I wanted to make sure that everything that we used w was in that vein. Um, I wanted to use really, really local farmers if I could. I, I kind of have a philosophy that if you put a tack in our hotel and you did a, a circle of about 100 miles, I want everything that, that we get to come from about that 100 miles. Do you um, succeed at that? We do. I know it changes. It does change. Yeah. It, there are some things inherently that you have to have that I can't say that that's true about. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. We have great grapes in this area. Yeah. But as it turns out, all these vineyards want to use these grapes to make wine. Go for it. I know. <laughs> I know the audacity, right? <laughs> so um, I don't get, I can't get local grapes. Yeah. Um, and people, when I asked for them, people thought I was crazy. Mm. Why would somebody make a grape that they didn't use for wine? I was like, because uh, people yeah. eat grapes. Yeah, because go. <laughs> 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 there are grape usages other than wine, so yeah. um, that kind of stuff. But primarily, I can say that you know, eighty-five or ninety percent of our, our produce comes from a really local mm. local area. So um, it's just about you know thinking about being better stewards of our planet. You know, mm. anytime that we use anything, I want to make sure we maximize its usage. I want to make sure that, um, at the end of the day, I don't have children, right? So mm -hmm. I want to make sure that when, when I leave here, that the planet is no worse for wear because of what, what I did. Mm -hmm. um, we only have one of these little spheres, and so we better take care of it because 
Um, and I just, I, I want my hands to be clean of it. I want to know that we, we were good stewards of what we were supposed to be good stewards of. So. Yeah, no plan B. Nope, there is no plan B. There's no plan B. Um, so how, has that changed over time? Did you not used to practice so sustainably? You know, it was, I, probably early in my career, I took some things for granted. Um, you know, as we, as the demand for certain products grows, how people harvest those products changes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd love to go with a, with a line and hook in every fish that we caught, right? That's what you used. Mm -hmm. But there's some farm, there's some um, uh, fishing practices that are really, really detrimental to our, to our oceans. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, and maybe just being naive, I just didn't assume that was the case early yeah. in my career. Mm -hmm. um, and as you learn more, as you learn how these things are being kind of extracted from our oceans, it's really important. It's really important that we respect the, the, the ecosystems of what we're taking and what that affects, mm -hmm. how we harvest that. If we're harvesting something and it affects, you know, 15 other ecosystems, then that's, that's important. That's, you know, um, and so there's, there's some things inherently that, that we'll do that um, I'll give you a small example. We used a really, really good farmed salmon. Mm -hmm. um, because whilst the way they fish for wild salmon, unless it's line and unless it's uh, hook and line, um, we're really, really overfishing salmon. Yeah. And so we need to come up with a system by which we can still enjoy salmon um, and not make them extinct. Mm -hmm. um, and so I use there's there's a there's some really good farm salmon. We use a company called Wild Isle Salmon. Mm -hmm. um, a salmon is weird in that people eat salmon because they think it's really good for you, right? Because there's yeah. a ton of omega threes. Well, a salmon doesn't produce omega-3s a salmon only has omega-3s based on its diet based on what it's eating right yeah. so if you eat a wild salmon that doesn't have access to those things then you're not really getting those benefits of of, of those fatty acids so on and so forth so mm -hmm. i just wanted to make sure that we we were using a, a product that was completely sustainable mm -hmm. um that was a super healthy fish that actually gave back to the environment didn't take from it um and it takes some research at the end of the day that's I'm not sure. something that um that's not something that just kind of falls in your lap. You have to look to do these things. And, mm -hmm. uh, and based on that research, we've come up with a couple great, you know, Schooner Bay is great. We use Wild Isle. Mm -hmm. um, there's some really great farm, uh, farm salmon that is actually better for you, better for the environment. Um, so it's kind of a win-win. Yeah. And do you, is seafood, I'm imagining it's a backbone of your menu. It really is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's be really difficult for me to kind of justify not having a great seafood items on our menu when we're this close to the ocean. We, and, right? and for the listener, I mean, you can see the ocean. It's sure. what is it? One block away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so like we have a, when we use lobster, I only use lobster during, during California lobster season. We don't use Maine lobster. We only use wet, uh, warm water or West coast lobsters. Mm. Um, Wait a minute. So warm water, West coast lobsters are very, first of all, hard to come by, aren't they? And well, very expensive. They're really, it depends on how you buy them. So I, the beauty of being in our locale, the beauty of having the reputation of our hotel is that I get to work with a lot of local, and I say local, you said that block, right? Yes. Really, yeah. truly local fishermen. Um, there's a season that they drop. I, I literally drive to the, to the dock mm. and meet them and let's talk about what you got. Mm. Um, and so if you had to go through a third party, if you went to a store and bought these, they, they are pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that COVID has done is a lot of the West Coast lobsters were being bought by by Asian countries. Yes, right. And they stopped doing that. So there's a lot more locally that you can procure here, and it really has driven down the price. Why did they stop doing that? Because just the COVID scare. There are people that that, that interaction that the 
China, we were we had embargoes that really China wasn't coming here picking up product and we yeah. weren't going there. Um, so it really stopped that um, kind of thorough way to get to get that they had access to those lobsters. So that means there's more lobsters for us. Yeah. Um, and because there's still that abundance of those lobsters, it really does drive down the price. Yeah. Um, so there, there, that has been a benefit of our current situation. And there haven't been many, but one of the things is we do get some, I have access to those lobsters now mm-hmm. that I, it would have been much harder to get before. I did a story on lobster, I don't know, a few years ago, and it was when you could not get a West Coast sure. lobster. And so here I'm writing this story about lobster and trying to stay loyal to local, but mm-hmm. when people can't get them, mm-hmm. um, I had to write about Maine lobster, mm-hmm. and it was... It felt kind of dirty to do that, but I mean, if if people can't get it, they're going to go to Gelson's and they're going to get it from the of tank. Of course, yeah. And those, listen, those, and I, um. So what I would call Maine lobsters, what we call the East Coast lobsters, are delicious, right? Yeah. Um, I would just, in a perfect world, be, like to have access to things that are closer to us mm-hmm. and that use food sources that are more native to our area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and literally from the water, they're they're they run pretty shallow, so. We're a block away from the shore. Um, if you go six blocks into the to the ocean, you can get lobsters. Yeah. And so people are dropping their baskets all over the place. And and luckily enough, I'm going to knock on wood that we still have access to those that great product. Yeah. So. Oh. Well, so tell me a little bit about um, you come up from Ventura. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you at home? How do you eat? Like, <laughs> like a chef. Um, <laughs> it's always the same answer, but it's worth asking. For sure. You know, it, the, the food I love to create and the food I like to eat are sometimes the same types of food. Yeah. But sometimes they're not. Because when I get home, oftentimes what I crave is a big cheeseburger or something. Yeah. A burrito. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a place here locally that makes a fantastic burrito. Who is that? Um, it's called Moni's. Oh. Um, they're closed on Sunday, which is the biggest tragedy in the, in the world. Um, <laughs> But it's one of my favorite places. It's literally something that we talk about three or four times a week. Who's going to go up there? And it's literally right around the corner. Um, they close at 3.30, which is another tragedy. But um, at the end of the day, that I, I really, really, really enjoy kind of comfort foods done well. Um, and I think by and large, most people do. So even when we are kind of constructing a menu, I want things... I, I generally think like this. Most people don't order things on menu that they can't pronounce or they've never heard of. Yeah, right. So I want things to be comfortable to people. I want things to be, um, I want there to be ingredients that you've heard of. Sometimes I think chefs overchef some things, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I would like to underpromise and kind of overdeliver. I want people to be wowed by what they get. Uh, but I want it to be familiar enough that these aren't ingredients that are just completely foreign to you because it may not make you feel comfortable. So, mm. um, I think sometimes chefs think that they're cooking for other chefs. We're not. We're cooking for people like, um, you know, who just want to enjoy really, really good food and who prepared well and seasoned well mm-hmm. um, and enjoy the act of being of being served and, and the role that we play in that. So do you not try to stretch people at all with, like, going a little outside their comfort zone? I do. And what I do it, I do it with ingredients within a dish that people understand. Okay. Um, give me an example of so that. So I'll give you a perfect example. Sweetbreads to me. Oh, no. so here's the thing. <laughs> Sorry. If we prepared the sweetbreads, like our last, our, the last menu we just changed, I had sweetbreads, but I did it like orange chicken because oh. it really has the texture of a chicken breast. Mm-hmm. I would argue it has the flavor of a chicken breast. Mm-hmm. And we, we tempura fried them and we tossed them in an orange marmalade glaze. And it tastes like orange chicken. 
Did right? people order it? People ordered it all the time. Hmm. Um, and it was part of a chicken dish. Hmm. And so when people ate it, people, people would ask for more of them. And the garnish would, and I don't know that everybody had the understanding of what they were. Yeah. Um, but it was a great introduction to something that could be delicious. If Oftentimes, though, we overthink our food to me. Mm-hmm. And so chefs overthink their food and how they, what they prepare for their guests. And guests overthink their food because if they think too much about what this, at the end of the day, either you like something or you don't like mm-hmm. it, right? If you think about fresh oysters or you think about an artichoke, artichoke's part of a thistle family that 90% of them are poisonous and could kill you. Yes, right. Right? But everybody loves an artichoke, yes. right? <laughs> so totally. um, an oyster, if you think about an oyster, I mean, who was the first person to eat an oyster? It looks like a rock. Yeah. Right? And somebody yeah. broke into that rock and got something delicious out of them. Like, well, we, and then they looked inside it mm-hmm. and they were like, okay, they must have been desperate. Yeah. <laughs> situation must have been bleak. Um, and so if people spent more time to me just enjoying what they put in their mouth, just enjoying what they ate, yeah. think about the flavor, think about the texture, think about what you're actually conceptually eating um, instead of overthinking its source, mm-hmm. knowing that it was been, it's been sourced responsibly, knowing that it's been sourced from a... a in a good way um and just thinking about whether you like something or not whether you enjoy it or not Mm. um i think uh people would be a little more adventurous if they did that i want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about one of my sponsors slow food co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality products and exceptional customer service Community-owned Slow Food Co-op buys from local producers, ensuring they offer their customers real and sustainable food. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and environmentally sustainable packaging. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Tell me about a dish that you, maybe even in your younger years, when, when you were perhaps like trying to find your style. Sure. Where you made something that just failed in terms oh. of likability or no one ordered it or it was just bad. I mean, it, I love the stories like okay. this. So I will tell you that when I first learned how to make a marshmallow. Oh. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, First of all, I love marshmallows. <laughs> Second of all, so I learned how to make these marshmallows, and then I developed a technique where I could do them in an ISI can. What's an ISI can? So it's like that that whip that whipped cream can, that oh, whipped yes. cream canister, a pressurized. Yes. Yeah. And so I could I could put this um, marshmallow mixture in this ISI can, and I could squeeze, and it'd be these beautiful marshmallows, super light, super fluffy. I put marshmallows on everything. When they come out of the can, are they done, or do you have to like chill them or let them rest, Mm-mm. or they're just complete when they complete. come out? Okay. Um, but I put marshmallows on everything. I made savory marshmallows to go on. Oh, wow. So I had a duck dish that I did a tarragon and tarragon and tangerine or something marshmallow uh-huh. that it was infused with that. And I was so proud <laughs> and it looked so good when it was done. Um, but nobody ordered that dish. Yeah. It was, it was, again, it was, it was me being more of a chef than thinking about what my guests would want. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I learned a technique, I just assumed that everybody in the world was going to be impressed by that. And I put it on everything. So if you would have eaten at one of my restaurants right then, you would have had marshmallows <laughs> on a lot of stuff. What um, was it again? It was tarragon and what? It was tarragon and tangerine. Yeah. Um, marshmallow. I, yes. I love it. And I brulee the marshmallow. Uh, 
<laughs> it looked so good. I was so disappointed. <laughs> oh, you have a little chef's graveyard of all the dishes. 100%. That... And but here's the funny thing about that graveyard is I'm telling you, maybe once a month you think of a dish that and you think about, is there a way that I could have done that that would have been successful? Yeah. So the truth is they're not really in the graveyard because they're going to come back. Like they're yes, right. like, <laughs> I, I believe they're just one step away from being great. So um, part of our job was to develop that one way. You're just way ahead. <laughs> That's what it is. You're just way ahead. Maybe. I Maybe. love it. Oh, my gosh. I'd give anything to try that funky little marshmallow now. Well, so it sounds like um, you said you've been doing this 37 years? 34. That? 34. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you've had a lot of time to see the arc of, you know, I, it didn't used to be quite such a thing to mm -hmm. be into food. Yes. So tell me a little bit about how you've seen that change and where do you think it might be going? You know, when I, when I first told... I remember when I told my mom that I wanted to be a chef. And it was, like I said, it was probably three or four days after I started my first job in a kitchen, which I was dishwashing. Mm. And my aunt was at my house. And this was obviously 100 years ago. And I tell my mom, mom, I want to be a chef. Like, the professional football player or chef? And professional football player had been my whole life, but now I've also added chef to this. Mm. And my aunt looks up and goes, you want to be a cook for the rest of your life? And I thought to myself, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a, I mean, I could see me doing that. Because there used to be a time pre-Food Network and all these television yes. shows that it wasn't the most glamour. There was no celebrity to it, right? You were just people who were super passionate, who were um, around other super passionate people. Um, and we got to create stuff that we really loved, that we were passionate about. Um, and then became, it became a little more um, glamorized to be a chef, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is funny because it's a really non-glamorous uh, profession yeah. or life, really. Um, and then you've seen the, then there's the culinary school started popping up everywhere. Yeah. And they were telling kids out of culinary school that when you graduate from culinary school, you're going to be a chef. Mm -hmm. It's the worst thing you could tell. Like, no, you're not. You're going to, you're going to come into somebody else's kitchen and you're going to have guys who's never been to culinary school who've been in this profession for years and they will have forgotten more than you know. Yeah. Um, you also have people who, if you're not passionate about, this is a tough job. If you're not passionate, if you don't love this, um, and the level of sacrifice when I when people when I would hire people or promote people to their first chef positions, one of my primary questions are you ready for the sacrifice that this is going to be? Hmm. Um, and everybody says they are. I haven't seen my mom on Mother's Day since I was thirteen. Holy cow! I haven't spent a Christmas at home. I can't tell you when. It's been twenty five years probably. Wow. Um, Especially doing hotel yes. restaurants. Yeah, right. It's and the truth is that's my norm now. I wouldn't know what to do if I had Christmas. So like, um, so Christmas now is a is another day of the is another day of the year. Yeah. Um, and if you're not prepared for that, if you're not, if you, th if it's tough, it's mm -hmm. tough. But I can't. I feel sorry for people who aren't. I was born kind of like I started. Like I said, I started when I was 14. Mm -hmm. So I've never known anything other than that. But if you are a career changer, or if you've done some other things in your life, you're used to having some some holidays off or some, mm -hmm. it's just not, it's just really doesn't work. It's not what we do. Yeah. Um, and it's never seemed like a sacrifice to me because this is truly what I love to do. Yeah. Um, but there has been an arc there. That arc has been, it's, um, there's some celebrity to it now. There's, you know, totally. um, and I think, I think that's awesome. I think that it gives some chefs the recognition that I think that this profession hasn't had in years, mm -hmm. but it also attracts some people who I don't know are doing this for the right reasons. Mm. Um, and, who, who might have a um, kind of a different opinion or expectation going into this yeah. um, than what, what the reality will probably be. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, if it's a sacrifice, like you say, there there is a sacrifice involved. What does it give back? Oh. You've stayed in it this long. What is it giving back I've, to you? I've got to work all over the world. I've seen cultures I would have never seen. Mm-hmm. I've made friends outside of outside of places I've been that I would have never made any other way. Um, there's something about food that is communal that brings people together. So you don't, it doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your gender. Mm-hmm. The truth is food is universal. And I have relationships and I've met people and I've been places that I would have never been or met or had those relationships had it not been for the, the craft. Um, I, have, I have received far more from this craft than I could ever give back to it. I can't fathom having another job. This is, I can't, the, th- the thought, I've, I've never really considered it. Hmm. This is what I will do until the, I can do it no longer. So I'm so happy to hear that because I've talked to several chefs who just kind of the light is out of their eyes mm-hmm. and you can see where it would be so relentless. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I think of. I, I don't, mm-hmm. obviously I don't work in a kitchen, but it seems to be relentless and to keep the inspiration, especially for chefs of your caliber who are doing something that's really quite artistic sure um how do you keep your energy up you know the the beauty of it is you have uh, part of that is i really believe that i'm doing the work that i'm supposed to be doing mm. right i'm mm. this isn't a i i'm really lucky that really early in my life i found something that i'm truly truly passionate about so that's that helps yeah um i also don't have any vices outside of work so <laughs> i don't have anything that drops me i don't drink i don't i'm not a coffee i've never I don't drink coffee. I've never had an alcoholic beverage. I've never done a drug. Um, never? You've never had an alcoholic I've drink. never drank a beer. I've never done a shot. I've never done any of that. So wait, hold on a second. Pause. So how do you work with, do you have a sommelier here? We do. Okay. So maybe that person does the work of like pairing mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the, in the, the, like I'm not opposed to drinking. It yeah. just doesn't taste good. Yeah. So if the truth <laughs> is, if, if it tasted good, I would drink. Um, that is so great because I think we all know, we remember that first time we tasted alcohol and we're like, blech. Mm-hmm. But it is a, it's an acquired. You know, how, so just that, that phrase acquired taste is so crazy to me. Talk, so you drank it the first time yeah. and you thought it was disgusting. Yeah. And then you drank it again. <laughs> And it was still disgusting. Uh-huh. Why would you drink it a third time? <laughs> like, you're going to just make yourself like this? Because I didn't die. Because <laughs> it didn't I, kill me. I, so. want, <laughs> I want my experiences to be a little more pleasurable than that. So if I, I want to consume things that I think are delicious. Mm. Um, and if it's not delicious, it's okay. It could be for somebody else. It's just not for me. Well, and I think it became... I don't know. There's a lot of things in life that we do that maybe don't feel. It's like, I suppose, like exercise or I don't know, certain kinds of movies or whatever. <laughs> we just we grow to love them. And so now, like, I, I'm sorry, but I, I love a good like hazy IPA or or a delicious Sauvignon Blanc or something I like that. I can't do it. Yeah, can't do it. Um, now, in fairness, I'm not going to keep trying them until I decide that I do like. No, them. don't. Um, don't. I, it's, it's served me well. So I, I don't think I'm missing that much. Yeah. I do say, I will say this. There are people who, um, my pastry chef here is a level two sommelier, and he know, he's forgotten m- more about wine than most people know. Mm. He is just super, super talented, has such a refined palate. And I'll see him taste the wine, and you can literally see the just sheer joy yeah. come. Yeah. And I wish that I could appreciate that hmm. um, without having to put that stuff in my mouth because it's not, I wouldn't taste what he tastes. And yeah. And maybe you just have a complete understanding of the craftsmanship that went in it and the, and the time. And I, I appreciate that. But 
as far as something just tasting good, I can't see it. So. All um, right. Well, so here's here's my. Uh, this is not really a secret anymore, but mm. I don't like seafood like mm. at all. Well, like there's nothing ever. wrong with that. Right, but I always feel so. I mean, we live here, and there's so much out there, and and especially I think because of the price, I feel like I'm really missing out on something here. This is a delicacy, and and I've pushed and I've pushed and I've tried, and I just can't get into it. Nothing wrong with that. So you're giving me permission not to Literally, your life should be put around things that you find enjoy. There's going to be so much in people's lives that we have to do kind of, listen, I don't want to pay taxes, but we do. Yeah, um, right, right. I don't want to make a car payment, but I do. Mm-hmm. Um, there should be a lot of things that you get to just do strictly because you enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't enjoy something and you don't have to do it, don't do it. Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff to eat. Yeah. So you should... Um, the, back, the back of my jacket says, all of my chef jackets say, life is short, lick the plate. <laughs> and I literally mean, um, find some stuff that you love. Um, we're only gonna, we're only gonna, we have a finite amount of time on this sphere. Um, so you better spend it with people you care about, doing things you love. Um, and if you don't love it and you're not, don't do it. Yeah. So who do you care about? Who outside of work is somebody who brings you joy? Oh, there's a lot of people who bring me joy. My wife. I have two dogs. We don't have any children. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of dogs do you have? I have a pit bull and a boxer. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, a, I have a great family. I have my wife's family is awesome. Um, I have been uh, overwhelmed with, with great aspects of my life. I have been um, blessed beyond what I deserve. So um, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't deserve all the blessings I have. I'll say it that way for sure. Yeah. Um, but I have, there's a lot of things. I have a great team who um, brings energy every day, who have a great attitude every day. Part of that is, you know, part of what I, when I see chefs that are burned out, I, I always ask myself what in their life drew, took away from them. Because the truth is, cooking is the funnest thing that we do all day, mm-hmm. right? And as you, the higher you go in the, our profession, the funny part is the less you cook. Mm, um, yes, right. right. So executive chefs cook less than line cooks do. Yeah. The funny part is I'm really good at it now. Mm. Like when I was a line cook, I was horrible. <laughs> and people had to choke down bad food for me for years. And now that I kind of know what I'm doing, I don't cook as much. Yeah, that's what, interesting. What got us in this profession is our just pure joy to create and to put our hands on ingredients and to make something, to enhance something that is, is already delicious or to take something and pair it with something else that people wouldn't assume. Um, that's the true joy of what we do. Um, that for that to have lost, for that gleam to have lost, I wonder what, what happened that, that made that be the case. Yeah. So you think that it could be, you, you suspect it's something outside of the job? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I've been really like, uh, my team is super energetic and they love food and they have passions outside the kitchen. Um, guys who love to fish or my, like I said, my pastry chef who's a, who's a level two psalm mm-hmm. loves wine. I just, you, you, you got to live some of your passions and things that, that fuel you, um, you can never forget about. So um, bringing the energy of your team, even if I have a day that I, you know, as I get older, I don't feel the same level of energy every single day. Yeah. But I have a team that brings great energy every single day. And it's a positive place. Um, the other people here on my exec team are, are just positive, passionate people. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have the same goal, even though we disagree all the time. Yeah. Right. We disagree um, about how we get to the to the finish line. But we all want to get to the finish line. We're all passionate about getting there, yeah. um, about taking great care of our guests. Um, and just passionate people just it I don't know how I don't know what happens to people that they lose that but mm-hmm. I've been really really fortunate that mm-hmm. um, I've been around the right team and I've, I've surrounded myself with great people and it's allowed me to continue to do what I love to do I think the fact that you take 
responsibility for bringing that group of people around you is key because a group of people will reflect the the management style sure. of the boss. So how did you form your management style? I mean, what's the first time you ever managed a person? What was that like? Uh, that was a few years ago. I don't. You know what? The funny thing about oftentimes what you learn from your leaders. Um, through your course or you to get any point in your life is you learn kind of what not to do. Yes, right. right. So I think when you take feedback or you look or you make observations about people, you put, you know, in your left pocket, you put all the good stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're really, they're really great communicators. They have great energy. They're the, and then you, in your right pocket, you put all the bad stuff, the yeah. stuff that you don't want to do, the stuff that you think, yeah, that didn't land well or um, I would have done that differently or I saw the outcome of that and I can just tell you that wasn't effective. Yeah. Um, and somewhere in, in between there, um, those, two, those two pockets, you come up with kind of your management style, how you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's evolved for me. I grew up in, in pretty strict um, European-style kitchens yeah. where chefs were screamers and yellers. And um, I've worked all over the, the, the world with some of those chefs. Yeah. And although they got some... They got some results that I would say they probably I don't know that their team they left the team feeling um as inspired as they could have yeah um and at the end of the day those are the type of people and those are the types of culinarians that they manage who I would argue burn out of this yeah um you just want to be in a more positive environment you want you want it to be a learning environment you want um somebody cared enough about us to teach us some stuff yeah so I kind of think I owe my profession to, to pass on you know what little I do know to as many people who care to learn it so it occurs to me that the screamers and yellers like the you know the the archetypal chef with the hat and the screaming and everything they may get results for a time sure but then as far as a long term you know would you rather be feared or loved Mm -hmm. it's it's a hard question to answer but I think those who create a um, a system of love tend to have longer term teams, teams that will stay there, even if maybe that profession isn't their favorite thing. Sure. You, they'll, you always stay for the people. 100%. Well, people don't quit their job. People quit their boss, right? Mm-hmm. So at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I think to myself, when I see those same people, I think, now what is this doing to your team, even though that's horrible? What is it doing to you? What's it doing to you? Like, how do you go home now? Are you, are you, can you be a good father now? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be a good husband or wife? Like, how, this affects you maybe more than it affects them. And that when you surround yourself with a super super negative energy and you're just in that all day i don't know how anything positive comes from that mm. um especially short term or long term it's just a very negative um non-passionate place to be all the time yeah um, that's so that's very astute just what does it do to you who taught you that i, I don't know <laughs> um <laughs> i think these are just things that you pick up just you know i'm old now so i you know you just pick up things along in this industry that, you know, this profession and uh, things that seem to work or things that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I, I don't let people who, who work here say they work for me. Nobody works for me. We work together. Mm-hmm. Nobody works. Nobody works for me. Yeah. Um, we work for our guests to try to make delicious food. We work for our ownership to make sure that we're running a, a great business model. But nobody works for Travis. Um, mm-hmm. we're, all, we're all teammates on the same team. Mm. You say that you've been all over the world, mm-hmm. um, and I know that the life, often the life of people in hotels and, and resorts and properties do move a lot. Sure. That, that can be the case. So if that's the case for you, where is home? Like, where is your true home? That's a great question, and the answer to that is I, I don't know that I have one. Mm-hmm. Um, so my executive sous chef here 
is a is a guy who's local to here. He's born and raised here. Um, and he literally knows that he knows every stat. He knows every detail. He knows everything about this area. Mm-hmm. And there's always I'm so jealous of that. I'm so jealous of a place that he knows so well that I could go. Yeah, you know, I, oh, I know that area. There's that restaurant used to be this, this and this. And then it got sold. Now it's this. There's a tire shop right next. I love right. that. Yeah. I, me too. I'm jealous of that. Yeah. Um, and I don't have a place like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not sad that I don't because I, I've been lucky enough to have some great life experiences. Um, I will tell you right now, my home is here. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell you that that when people ask me my favorite hotel to work in, I can tell you it's the one I'm at now. Yeah. I mean, life has led me here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my the team that I work with every day, the the managers I work with, the execs I work with are here. Uh, my, the last great meal I ever made was here. Um, the last meal that I made that didn't go over well was here. Um, so I, I I don't know that I have that traditional what people would call home. Like you feel like you have roots somewhere. I don't really have that. Um, but I don't feel like I've missed that either. Yeah. A person who lives in the present, which mm-hmm. is a good thing. Well, I always ask everybody who's on here, what if you knew that you, know, you were going to die tomorrow and you knew ahead of time and you had the choice, what would you eat and who would it be with? It's not meant to be morbid. It's no. meant to be joyful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what would I eat? I'd want some really, really good baby back ribs. Mm. I'd want... Um, sauce no sauce sauce okay i like a uh memphis style rib so a little sweeter a little little spice in there um i want some great sides um who i would have it with would be my wife and my dogs Mm -hmm. um a close couple of my few you know really really close friends my mom Mm -hmm. um my sister her husband and their two children um i don't need much more than that Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. No. Thank you so much for meeting with me and for telling me all this stuff. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Consumed, hosted by me, Janie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. You know, this season marks my 70th interview with California tastemakers, and I continue to feel lucky for getting to speak with so many cool people about flavor. As we move into 2021, Please continue to lean into your local independent businesses wherever you are. They will need your support more than ever this winter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.